You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Great. Uh, that's Tony, by the way. We love Tony so much. Uh, love his story. Love the work that God has done in his life. Man, it is good to see you guys this morning. How are we? Good, good, yeah. Uh, so I'm Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown uh, Lexington. Uh, pumped to be with you guys this morning as we get in God's Word together. Uh, and as we continue our next installment of the series that we are calling Why I'm a Christian, where we are trying to investigate some of the rationality behind the things that we believe as Christians. Uh, I wanted to let you know right up here at the beginning, just wanted to remind you that we're not going to be able to cover probably all the things that we could cover when it comes to the rationality of our faith, uh, but we would like to cover the big ones, and we would like to cover the stuff that you want to know about, that you're curious about. And so I just wanted to remind you that uh, throughout this series, you can text in questions to the number on the screen right there, 91011. Uh, we would love to hear from you. In two weeks, we're going to have a little Q&R time, some question and response time, where we're going to seek to answer some of the questions that you guys have. So uh, if you haven't been texting in questions, just wanted to fill you in that you could do that. Uh, you could even do it while I preach. I won't be offended. That's totally fine. I'm with it. Now, I'll say this. Originally, Originally, I wanted to call this series, Why Am I a Christian? Uh, With that inflection and everything, because I kind of felt like that question really encapsulates how it feels sometimes to be a believer in Jesus. Like, am I crazy to believe the things that I believe? Am I crazy to believe that there is a God who made everything? Am I crazy to believe that Jesus did actually rise from the dead? Today, we're going to be talking about the Bible, and we're going to be seeking to answer the question, am I crazy to trust the Bible? Am I crazy to believe this? Like, am I crazy to believe that, or is it irrational for me to submit my life to the wisdom and authority of a 2,000-plus-year-old collection of writings? Like, I don't know if you're aware, but the book that you hold in your hands or that you store on your phones or that's located underneath the seats that you're sitting in, like, throughout history... That book has been a rather controversial piece of work. Like, I know for many of us, it probably doesn't feel that way, especially if you grew up in the South like I did. For me, the Bible growing up, it just felt very common, very ordinary, very commonplace. Like, it was everywhere in my home. Like, we had like 20 of them growing up. There was one in the kitchen and one on the coffee table and one by everybody's bed, you know? And so, in my life, it did not feel like this book was all that controversial, right? It just felt like the rug. Like, it was there to look pretty for whenever guests came by and visited at uh, our home. But the reality of it, of it is, is that is not how these writings were actually treated for much of their history, and honestly, through much of the globe even today. For example, in the 15th and 16th centuries, people were burned at the stake for translating it into the common language so that the everyday person could have access to it. Some of the greatest empires in history, from Rome to Nazi Germany to Soviet Russia, all burned or banned or at least censored the Bible. Regimes like North Korea and China still do similarly today. In fact, there are 52 countries in the world today where it is highly dangerous and or illegal to own or distribute copies of the Bible. 
even in countries where it's not illegal to own like our own, there is like still this near constant debate on the right and on the left about what the Bible really is and how we should treat it. And that is not to mention uh, the countless times in its history where it's been used and abused by people for personal or political agendas, right? And so the question is, is if the Bible is this controversial, are we crazy to trust it? Are we crazy to submit to it? Now, obviously, I'm going to answer that question with no, because otherwise I'm fired, right? Like, I get that. I do. But regardless of that, here's what I want to hope to show you today, that there actually is very good and very important reasons why it's not crazy to trust the Bible at all. There's actually very good and very important reasons. But before we get into answering that question, what I want to do first is I just want to talk for a moment about what the Bible is Because in my experience, misunderstanding what Christians actually believe about the Bible often derails people's trust in the Bible before they even begin. And so if you'll grant me five to ten minutes, I just want to unpack for us what we actually believe the Bible is so that we can start from the right space. So let's look together at 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 17. And here what Paul does is he gives us a great little snapshot of what Christians believe the Bible is and its purpose in our lives. So let's check it out together. This is what Paul writes. He says, but as for you, and he's talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right, Paul says a lot here, but one of the first things that you'll notice is that Paul refers to what we call the Bible in two ways. He calls it sacred writings and all scripture. Now, this might feel a little elementary to you, and so if this insight offends you because it's beneath your intellectual prowess, I apologize. But you'll notice that both of these instances are mentioned in the plural, as in there is more than one. And that's important because the title actually, Bible, is a bit misleading for what you hold in your hands or look at on your phone. Bible in English is from the Latin word biblia, and it simply means book, all right? So when we say the Holy Bible, what we're actually saying is the Holy Book. The problem, though, is that the Bible is not a book. It's not a book. The Bible is actually a library. The Bible is a library. We miss this because the Bibles we hold in our hands or look at it on our phones are all bound together in what looks like a book, all right, and it reads as though it's a book with the chapter of Genesis and the chapter of Matthew and so forth and so on, but this is not what it is. The Bible is not a book. It is a library or rather a collection of many, many books, 66 to be exact, 66 books written over the course of 1,500 years by many different people in many different languages in many different geographic locations and cultures in many different genres, such as narratives and poetry and proverb, and prophecy, and letters, and history, and even a healthy dose of apocalyptic literature just for good measure, right? And the reason that matters, it's very important, the reason that matters is because all sorts of problems happen when we don't read the Bible as a library of different genres and different writers spanning across different eras. The Bible is written... 
written to be read as a library, not as a book. So, for example, I'll give you an example of this. Often people want to write off the Bible, if not Christianity as a whole, because they'll read something like Psalm 19, where the psalmist, for instance, uh, writes these descriptions about how God created the world and how he set the sun in the sky and how he set the course of its rising and its setting. And they'll want to write it off because they'll say things like, well, obviously we can't trust the Bible because we know as enlightened people that this is not how the solar system works. The sun does not revolve around the earth, but we know that the earth revolves around the sun. So obviously we can't trust the Bible because these writers don't know what they're talking about. And on the surface, that seems like a very justifiable argument to make. But the problem is that Psalm 19 is poetry, and it's meant to be read as poetry. It's not trying to talk to us about how the solar system works, but trying to talk to us about something on a much deeper level. The type of genre you're reading affects how you read it. So, for example, very few of us sit on a couch at night with a glass of wine and a nice warm blanket to curl up and read a math textbook, right? I mean, some of us do, and you're weirdos, and you can just own that, but the majority of us don't. Like, we, we curl up with Harry Potter or something like that. In the same way, very few of us sit down and take in-depth, rigorous notes and highlight passages from the Twilight Saga. It's just not what we do. The genre and the author and the context all affect how we read the material in front of us. And the same is actually true with the Bible. But the Bible doesn't just claim to be some vast ancient library. It claims to be a library of simultaneous divine and human origin. It claims to be written by both God and by men, or like Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God, which admittedly might pop a circuit in your brain, right? Like, how does that work? It's written by both? What does that even mean? I read one New Testament scholar recently that I thought put it really, really well. He likened it to uh, a master musician playing an instrument. Like, so say you were to go to a jazz club and there was some famous saxophone player there. Or honestly, just think about Micah when he's up here playing in our band, playing the guitar in our band. Like, that dude can make that guitar sing. But think about that imagery for a moment. You hear this music and it moves you to your core. The question I have for you is, is that music coming from the guitar or the saxophone or from the musician? Which one is it coming from? The answer is simply, yes both. There is an intelligence, a brain, a creativity, a skill, a breath that is coming from outside the instrument, but is also coming through the instrument. In the same way, scripture is God-breathed, that there is this vast mind, a being of intense and immense intelligence and creativity and skill and wisdom that is playing through or breathing through the human instrument to write the scriptures. The Spirit of God is breathing through the instruments of Moses and David, of Isaiah and Peter and Paul or whoever, to make the sound of the music of scripture. And this is one of the things about the Bible that uh, really tend, that tends to really cause people a whole lot of problems. So, for example, I know many of you have been turned off to the Bible because it got forced down your throats. Like, there was nothing about it to investigate or discern or dig deeper about. Like, it was just these golden tablets that dropped out of the sky to us from God, and we're just supposed to accept it. But that's a Mormon idea. That's not actually a Christian idea. The Bible never tries to hide from you its human side. It's actually very honest that it was written and recorded by real human beings in real time and real space. 
It's not a dirty little secret. For example, there are times when Paul says things like, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even remember which one of you I baptized. I just, I don't, I don't know. Uh, there's even other times where he goes, listen, I say not the Lord. Like, I don't want you to get this twisted. This is not the Lord saying this. This is me saying this. It's not a dirty little secret. It's not even an open secret. It's just open. It just is what it is. But, and you need to hear this, it doesn't attempt to hide its divine side either. It doesn't attempt to hide its divine side either. It never shies away from informing the reader that it is to be read as the one true access point to reality. That it holds divine weight and authority in our lives because God himself is also the author. Jesus shows this very clearly in Mark 12, 36, where quoting Psalm 110, he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In this passage, in this little aside of Jesus, he actually shows us both, that he doesn't see the scriptures as an invention. He doesn't say David speaking from his own experience or David airing out his own opinion or David imagining this with his narrow view of God and his built-in prejudice said this. That's not what he does at all. But he also doesn't see it as dictation either, like David fell asleep with a pen in his hand and woke up magically with these words written out on a page. Or, or even better, that the spirit sat David down like a boss to a receptionist and said, hey, I got a memo that I want you to take down, David. No. Jesus sees the scriptures as a divine and human collaboration. So, the, so what Christians believe is that the Bible is a library written by God and men that tells us a unified story that leads us to Jesus. A library written by God and men that tells a unified story that leads us to Jesus. As Paul says it here, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The purpose of the scriptures is to get us to Jesus, to know him, to trust him, to become more like him. The Bible is not primarily a history though it does contain history. The Bible is not ultimately a rule book or a road map for life, though it certainly does contain instruction and wisdom for living. The Bible is not even primarily a writing about you, though it does apply to you. The Bible is primarily about God and what he is doing in the world in and through Jesus. Jesus says as much himself in Luke 24, uh, verse 27. He says, and beginning with Moses, which is one of Jesus' ways of talking about the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Or over in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. And that word fulfill means to bring completion to. Jesus is saying that he is the key to unlocking the meaning behind everything that is in the scriptures. All of it. It's all meant to point and direct us to him. The Old Testament is pointing to the Jesus who is to come, the hope of the Messiah who is to come. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are pointing us to the Jesus who is here. And Acts through Revelation point us to a Jesus who came and who is coming again. The whole thing is about him. He is the climax and the center of it all. Now, that's what we believe the Bible is. And to be clear, this is just what the Bible says about itself, okay? The question we want to answer is, are we crazy for believing this? Are we crazy for trusting it? To which I would say, 
No, and I'll give you some reasons why, but I want to go ahead and prepare you that for the rest of our time, this is probably going to feel like drinking out of a fire hydrant. So gird your loins, all right? Let's go. Uh, The first reason is this, Jesus himself. The first reason it's not crazy to trust the Bible is Jesus himself. I love how British pastor and theologian Andrew Wilson put it in his book, Unbreakable, which is also a resource for this series. You can get it on our website. He says, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Now, look, if you're a skeptic in the room this morning, you probably think this is unfair, like I'm trying to Jesus juke my way out of dealing with your actual concerns about the Bible. And listen, I feel you, I really do, and I promise I'm going to get to those real concerns in just a few minutes. But, but I wanted to lead in with this one because honestly, for me personally, and really for us as Christians, the number one reason why we trust the Bible and all of its claims in their entirety It's because Jesus did. It's because Jesus did. So last week we laid out the argument that Christianity is the only religion grounded in one major historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. We said that if the resurrection really did happen, then Jesus must be the one true access point to reality. That the Christian worldview then must be the only right and true framework for how we understand life here on planet earth. And I'm not going to rehash with you everything that we covered last week, so please go back and check it out if you missed it. But our conclusion was that based on the data that we have, the most reasonable explanation for the resurrection is simply that it really did happen. That Jesus really is alive. And if the resurrection really did happen, then quite simply, that changes absolutely everything. It changes everything, including how we think about the Bible. If Jesus is alive, what that means is that he is God. And for the record, it would be really strange to think that the God who defeated death had some misguided opinions about the Bible, right? Like that would just be odd. And when you look at Jesus' words, you see over and over again that he trusted the Bible and saw it as ultimately authoritative. There are lots of instances in the New Testament that I could take you to to show this, but I actually just want to take you to one that is my personal favorite. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4 together. Flip over in your Bibles to Matthew 4. So in Matthew 4, Jesus and the devil are basically having this epic showdown, right? Where the devil is trying to get Jesus to fail like Adam did originally in the Garden of Eden. Let's look at this account together. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, so he's quoting the scriptures here, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. stone excuse me. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Verse 8, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. I love this. This is one of my absolute favorite instances in Jesus' life. So here, here is Jesus and the devil, and they are going at it in this epic showdown. And just for the record, Jesus has all the resources of heaven available to him. So like in my mind, if it were me and I were Jesus in this space, like for me, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce lightsabers into the course of human history, right? Like that's what I would do. It's like I want a weapon that is going to shock the world and destroy the enemy. Like that's how I would fight. Yet what we see with Jesus, how Jesus fights is by using, by trusting, by submitting to the authority of the scriptures, he uses the Bible to fight, not a lightsaber or what have you. And at each point in the skirmish, it reveals a different aspect of how committed to the scriptures Jesus actually is. So in the first exchange, he shows that for him, God's word is enough. That God's word is sufficient and all he needs. That Jesus believes that whether he's wandering in the wilderness for 40 days or 40 years, that bread alone will not satisfy him. But he needs the words that come from God's mouth, that God's words are what he really needs for life and sustenance to get by. In the second, faced with an attempt to distort the text meaning, he shows that God's word is coherent. That yes, while Psalm 91 says that God protects his people, Deuteronomy 6 tells us not to test God. And faithful submission to the scriptures holds both of these two things together. It doesn't pick and choose what it's going to believe and what it's going to reject. And in the third, he shows that God's word is authoritative, that if God tells us to do something, then we do it. No matter what anyone says and no matter how alluring or easy other options may seem, it becomes really apparent that Jesus loved the Bible. He loved it with his heart. He was satisfied. He loved it with his mind. He understood it. And he loved it with his will. He obeyed it and submitted to it. And as I showed you earlier, Jesus absolutely affirmed the divine and human nature of the scriptures and how the whole thing is meant to point to him. And those are just some quick snippets, but you can begin to see the big idea of how Jesus approached the text. Jesus, through his life and teaching, showed that he not only affirmed but defended the ultimate authority of the Bible. We see many times in the Gospels different Jewish circles confronting Jesus and trying to trap him in some sort of theological debate. You have the Pharisees who were the religious conservatives of the day thinking that he was too far left because he spent all of his time with drunks and tax collectors and sinners. And so they tried to trap him in uh, not taking the Bible seriously enough. You have the Sadducees who were the religious progressives of the day thinking he was too far right because he upheld the authority of the Bible a little too much. And they both try to trap Jesus over confusing passages or setting up weird scenarios to mock his beliefs. And here's the thing. In each and every circumstance, Jesus never shies away from or apologizes for the scriptures. Rather, he always defends and teaches it correctly with truth and grace. He says, no, you're actually the ones who don't understand what God is saying. And maybe you're like, okay, you know what? Okay, cool, Bailey, I get it. I'll grant you that. But that's, that's the Old Testament. Jesus, I'll grant you that Jesus affirmed the Old Testament, but the New Testament wasn't written yet. So listen, maybe Jesus was down with the OT, but who's to say we should trust the NT, right? Well, 
Jesus actually would say you should trust it too. Let's look over at John 14, verses 25 through 26. He says, these things I have spoken to you, he's talking to his disciples, while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Many biblical scholars point to this as referring to the eventual writing and teaching of the New Testament. That what Jesus does in these verses is he commissions his disciples, and later Paul in Acts 9, the people who were literally eyewitnesses to his life and ministry, who followed them for years, he commissioned them to write down what he taught them and pass it on to those who would come after him. He commissioned them to write what they wrote and the things that we have now. And when you add all of this together it becomes pretty clear that Jesus viewed the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, as the word of God pointing forward and pointing backward to him. So Jesus is one reason why I would argue, and I would argue it's the most important reason that it's not crazy to trust the Bible. But let me give you another one. Another reason why it's not crazy is honestly the quantity, quality, and accuracy of the historical documents we have. The quantity, quality, and accuracy of the historical documents we have. So for those of you who are naturally skeptics here, this is where I actually want to start to deal with some of your concerns. So perhaps, perhaps you'll grant me that Jesus trusted the Bible and that if he really is alive, then yes, we should trust the Bible too. But you may ask, how can we be confident that the scriptures he had and affirmed are the ones that we have and also should affirm? I mean, after all, we don't have the original manuscripts, and the majority of the Bible was written in a language other than what we speak, right? How do we know that what we have in our hands right now isn't the result of some 2,000-year-long game of telephone? You guys remember that one, right, from like youth group or whatever, where all the kids would like sit in a circle, and it would start with one person whispering some outlandish phrase in their neighbor's ear like, the elephants packed the packages, Right? And then their neighbor is supposed to pass it all the way around, whisper it to the next guy until it makes it all the way back around to the original. And it winds up being something like, the infants hid the snacks again. And it's like, what? Oh, my gosh. Who said it? Who changed it? I don't know. You know, that whole deal. Listen, people argue that the same is true of the Bible, that since it's been so long since the original manuscripts were written, we can't possibly trust what we hold in our hands today. So how do we know that an ancient telephone game isn't what happened with the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked. While it's true that we do not have the original manuscripts, if you look at the evidence that we do have, all of the copies of the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see that unlike any other piece of literary work in history, what we have is unbelievably reliable. More than any other community, the Jewish and Christian community went to great stakes to preserve the original writings. Now, a side note to this, if you want to dive into this more, there's a great lecture called The Making of the Bible on our website, whyimachristian.com. You can check it out. I'll go ahead and tell you. It is a wonderful and in-depth, almost two-hour journey of delightful Bible nerdiness. Like, it's absolutely wonderful. Like, I commend it to you. Please take the time to go watch it, but we don't have time to cover all of that today. So I'll just give you a brief overview of some of the main points. Let's start with the New Testament because this is where it's the easiest. When we look at the New Testament, we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, about 8,000 Latin manuscripts, and another 1,000 manuscripts in other languages like Syriac and Coptic and the like. And among all of those manuscripts, 
there is about 99.5% congruence among all of them. Meaning that 99.5% of them say the exact same thing. All of them. You find no other work in, of literature or history preserved in the same way that the Bible has been pre preserved. So just to compare this to other historical documents and books circulating around this time period, uh, I made this chart for you. I want to show what we're looking at. So some of these guys you may be familiar with, uh, there's Euripides. Uh, he wrote his works around uh, 440 B.C. He was a uh, playwright, this sort of thing. Uh, the earliest copy of his stuff we have was around 1100 A.D., uh, which is about a 15-year gap. And the number of copies that we have of his work, we have nine which is not enough for us to really reconstruct the original manuscript. Uh, guys like Plato and Aristotle, you may be familiar with them. Uh, we, they wrote around 380 B.C. and 350 B.C. respectively. The earliest copy that we have dates around 900 or 1100 A.D., which is a 13 or a 1400-year gap respectively. And we only have seven or and five copies of their works as well. Again, not enough to really reconstruct the original manuscript. But when it comes to the New Testament, Testament. The New Testament was written around 60 AD, and our earliest copy is from 130 AD. For the record, if you're quick at math, that is less than 100 years. And how many copies of the New Testament do we have from this time period? Around 14,000, which gets us 99.5% accuracy to reconstruct the originals. That is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, like me, okay, you, you might recognize those names and say, hey, uh, Bailey, wait a minute here. Uh, Plato didn't write history. He wrote philosophy. So that comparison isn't one-to-one. -one. I need to see recorded history from that time period. And so if you're the one other nerd in the room here who knows that, here's a list of historical works for, uh, from that time period for you to compare as well. The works of Herodotus, written around 450 B.C., our earliest copy from A.D. 900 is still a 1,350-year gap. I can't even begin to try to pronounce that middle guy's name, uh, Thucydides or something like that. Uh, he wrote around 420 B.C. Again, the earliest we've got is 900, a 1,300-year gap. And then Tacitus, who we're all probably familiar with, wrote around A.D. 100. But our earliest copy is from 1100 A.D., which is about 1,000 years. And he, we got the best record of his stuff. Uh, with 20 copies of his works. So again, the New Testament, written around 60 A.D., our earliest copy from 130 A.D., and 14,000 copies of it just pales these other things in comparison. It is absolutely unbelievable. Simply put, if someone seeks to eliminate the trustworthiness of the New Testament, then to be consistent, we would also have to dismiss significant portions of Western literature and ancient histories to boot. We would have to pull many items from the bookshelves and out-of-classroom discussions. We mentioned this last week, but if you just look at the writings of the early church fathers alone, so not the manuscripts of the Bible we have, but just the writings of the early church fathers, if we look at those, just the verses that they cite, we can actually reconstruct about 95% of the entire New Testament. And if you notice the chart, the earliest manuscripts we have of the New Testament were written within 100 years of the events of the New Testament to where there was unanimous consensus that what we have in our Bibles is exactly what the disciples of Jesus had in mind. So, much to the disappointment of Da Vinci Code fans and bad History Channel experts, and I use that term expert very, very loosely, 
There was no secret conspiracy that the church tried to pull a power play to get the books they wanted in the canon. Rather, when the Council of Nicaea came together in 325 AD, they simply affirmed what they already knew to be true, that these were the books that were most reliable because they were written within the time of eyewitnesses. These were the books that were first circulated and everything else came way, way after. They just affirmed what they knew to be true. Henry Gamble, a New Testament scholar, put it succinctly. He said, the New Testament was not self-consciously created by the church either as a response to external pressures or as a means to some end, but arose naturally and spontaneously from the inner life of early Christianity, above all in context of worship and instruction. Henry Gamble, it's worth noting that he is not a Christian, and even he recognizes that there was no power play with the New Testament, that the New Testament was the writings of the early church. Now, admittedly, the Old Testament is a little bit tougher because it's considerably older. But what we do have is enough evidence to affirm that the reliability and confirm that the Old Testament we've got is the same one that Jesus did. There are really three pieces of evidence that we look at for this. The first we have the Masoretic text, which dates between 600 and 1200 A.D., this contained the entire Hebrew Bible as well as some extra rabbinical teachings. Many of the earliest English Bible translations, such as the King James translation in 1611, were based off of this text, which is great, especially if we've got something older to compare it to so we can cross-examine the accuracy of it. But it's still 600 years after Jesus and 1,000 years at its earliest after the last Old Testament book was written. So if this is all we've got, well, then honestly, that's no bueno. But we have something else. Secondly, we have what's called the Septuagint, which was formed between 250 B.C. and 70 A.D. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint is Latin for 70 because as the story goes, there were seven, uh, the, Greek, excuse me, the Greek king of Egypt commissioned 72 Jewish scribes to take their Hebrew Bibles and translate them over from Hebrew into Greek, which was the dominant language of the time. And so these 72 scribes independently began translating the entire Old Testament into Greek. And when all, of they were, when all of them were done, as the story goes, they showed each other their work and all of them apparently had translated the Hebrew Bible in the exact same way. And regardless of that, what's significant about the Septuagint is this puts us squarely in the time of Jesus. It puts us back 250 years, in fact, before the birth of Jesus. We're there. We know this is the Bible they would have had. These are the scriptures they would have had in Jesus' day. But we can actually do better because the Septuagint is in Greek. It would be fantastic. Fantastic if we had one that was that old, also in Hebrew. Then we could cross-examine for accuracy to an even better degree. And it just so happens that we have that too. I'd like to introduce you to the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, their story is a wild one. They were discovered back in 1946 and 1947 by a shepherd boy who just randomly out in the desert was throwing, and this is literally how they were found. He was randomly out in the desert just throwing rocks into a cave, and he heard a smash and goes, uh-oh, <laughs> something broke. This is a problem, and when he went to investigate, he discovered a massive internal cave system, an almost endless cave system that contained all of these old pots that had tons of ancient scrolls in them, including parts of every single Old Testament book except one, dating as far back as 400 B.C. 
It was considered by many to be the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Archaeologists and Bible scholars to this day are still uncovering all the scrolls in there. And so you have 250 years before the birth of Jesus, clear manuscript evidence of the Hebrew Bible, that it was not only formed, but it was established and held as authoritative. And what's incredible is when you overlay all of these different documents together, the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find that all of them are saying the exact same thing. That there is no major theological discrepancy or contradiction from one to the other. In fact, any discrepancies that you do find in these documents are for the most part either a misspelling or a misplaced word or one will use a pronoun instead of a proper noun or something like that. Almost all of which you can find as footnotes in the Bibles that you hold in your hands today. In fact, of the 475, and yes, someone did take the time to actually tally them, of the 475 supposed contradictions in the entire Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the vast majority of these contradictions are like this, or ones that can be quickly and simply resolved through understanding how theology works or the context and purpose, genre, and authorial intent of the passages themselves. So in sum... We have at our disposal an unbelievable record of historical data and the literally resurrected Jesus to back up the trustworthiness and reliability of the Bibles we have in our hands. So, why all the controversy? Why all the controversy? Again, Andrew Wilson says it really, really well. He says, let's be honest. The scriptures can be difficult. Sometimes the difficulties come from within the text themselves, accounts vary, theology develops, tensions exist, and authors bring different perspectives on things, not to mention the fact that all of the texts were written in languages and cultures which are completely different from ours. In my experience, though, most of these difficulties are fairly easy to resolve with a mixture of study, imagination, and honesty. They can make people puzzled, but they rarely make people angry. The things that really get people riled up, at least in our day, are areas where scripture challenges our deeply held beliefs. When you get into conversations about the Bible, you find that the biggest challenges for most people are not over issues where the Bible is unclear, but over issues where the Bible is very clear, and people don't like it. Judgment, miracles, sex, things like that. His point, why all the controversy over the Bible? Because 99% of the time, the real issue we have with the Bible is not a textual issue or a contradiction that we can't resolve. People don't ban books and kill people because they miss a detail here or there, right? No, people ban books because of their power. And if the Bible really is true, then it, then it is a collection of writings with unbelievable power. And that, at the very least, means we are obligated to submit to it and follow it. And that gets us uncomfortable really, really quickly. It's my experience in my own life and in ministry that most of our problem with the scripture has nothing to do with manuscripts or translation issues or discrepancies or whatever. Most of our distrust of the Bible is because we just simply don't like what it says. 
A pastor I really respect and learn a lot from, a guy you've heard me quote a bunch, a guy named Tim Keller. He said that whenever someone from his church who's been faithfully following Jesus meets up with him and says, hey, pastor, I, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. There's just too many theological problems with the Bible. His immediate response over 30, 40 some odd years of ministry has now become, okay, so why don't you tell me who you're sleeping with? Right? Now listen, he's, he's 70 and can get away with that. So in 35 years, come talk to me. Like, I might think that, but I definitely don't say it to you. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not my space. But I mean, man, like just straight to the point. Like, that's a funny, if not little mean way of saying what, I, what I've seen to be true, that when our view of the world and our sinful desires or our wants or needs or preferences butt up against what the scriptures say are right, true, and good, it is much easier on our conscience to say, well, I just don't know if the Bible can be trusted on that. I just don't know if the Bible is right. We don't have the original manuscripts, you know, and it's in an ancient language and from a different culture. How can we trust that that is actually supposed to be true for us? It's simply easier to write the Bible off than submit to it. The truth is, is we most often distrust the Bible because we don't like it. We don't like what it says about money. We don't like what it says about sex or marriage or gender. We don't like what it says about divine accountability and justice, especially our personal responsibility therein. We don't like what it says about confession or loving your enemy or whether, uh, whether that be annoying Susan from the office or that person who sits on the opposite ideological end of the spectrum or maybe just somebody from the non-white sections of the world. It's not actually a Bible problem. It's an us problem. And this is not to write off genuine questions and difficulties that you may have with the Bible. There are questions and there are difficulties that are truly there. But it is to say that if you have rejected Jesus because of something he says, because it's something he says bothers you or you disagree with him about some issue, you have actually gotten it backwards. If he is actually God and rose from the dead to prove it, then you should assume he is going to see some things differently than you do. And that at the end of the day, he's right. He's right. I made a joke earlier about how if I were Jesus facing off against the devil, I would have brought out the lightsaber or whatever. And it was silly, sure. But I think that that juxtaposition is actually really, really important. Because it says something about the power that Jesus knew God's word actually has. That it was that out of all the things that could have been his weapon of choice, God's word was his choice to combat the enemy. And here's the truth for us. When we take a buffet approach to the Bible, so I'll take a little care for the poor here, I'll take a little bit of grace there, but mm, sexual ethics, mm, not, no, not today. That doesn't seem like it's going to whet my appetite too well. When we take this pick and choose mentality to the Bible, we actually do so to our own demise. In fact, when we do that, we rob the Bible of its very power. We rob the Bible of its power to do what it is meant to do. And here's what I mean. So for example, like you don't want other people to have the same pick and choose mentality with the Bible that we want for ourselves. No one wants that. So the guy who's abusing his wife, like you don't want him to dismiss Colossians 3.9 or Ephesians 5, which tells him to love and not be harsh with his wife, to love his wife as Christ loves the church. 
The business owner who's taking advantage of his employees for his own personal greed and game. Like, you, you don't want him to ignore Proverbs 11.1, 1, which tells him that false bookkeeping is an abomination to the Lord. That woman who keeps gossiping and spreading lies about you, like, you don't want her to reject Ephesians 4.29, which tells her to build up and not tear down with her words. The country on the other side of the world that treats people as lesser because they're in a different social class, like you want them to obey Leviticus 18, 19 that says you should love your neighbor as yourself. Like you don't want people to reject the Bible. You want them to be convicted. You want them to be brought under its authority to submit their lives to it and obey it so they don't destroy themselves and others around them. But it can't hold that power for them if it doesn't also get to hold that power for you. To say it another way, if you get to be the exception to what it says, then why not anyone else? If you get to pick and choose which parts of the Bible get to apply, get to convict you, get to change you, then why can't somebody else who happens to disagree with you about other things? But it's not just that it loses its power to shape the world. But if we do this, it also loses its power to shape us. It loses its power to make us into the people we are intended to be. It loses its power to lead us to Jesus, to help us see our need for his grace, to make us like Jesus and ultimately produce the life, a life of Jesus in us, a life of love, joy, and peace, and all the other fruit of the Spirit. And look, I tell you this all the time, and I'm not going to stop because it is so crucial to putting things that God tells us into place. But listen to me. God is not trying to take anything from you. He's not trying to take anything from you. In the things that he says, and the things that he teaches, in his instructions, and in his commands, and his wisdom, not a single one of them did he say to ruin your life. He didn't do that. No, they are to give you life. His word is actually for your joy. I love how Jesus says it in John 15, 10 through 11. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He says, listen, listening to me and submitting to my word is for your joy. It's where it's going to be found. Or as Paul says it in 2 Timothy 3, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And I want you to hear me on this. If you only accept and trust the parts of the Bible that line up with what you already think, if you never let the Bible disagree with you and submit to it, then you rob it of its power to bring this type of life to you. You will never grow as a Christian if you only follow the parts of the Bible that you agree with. You will never experience the life of joy and fruitfulness that you were made for if you only eat at the Bible buffet. And that is guaranteed. That is guaranteed. And this is where the Bible is meant to lead us, to become a people who submit to a higher authority than ourselves for our own joy. An authority that brings real spiritual power with it. An authority and a power that can tell us we're wrong and show us a better way. An authority and a power that can contradict us and give us life. And so rather than me trying to challenge the Bible, what I want is I want to let the Bible challenge me. That I may become the person in Christ I was created to actually be. And that's what I want for you as well. Let me pray for you.
God, we thank you for the gift of your word to us, that it is your word that you sought with great care to deliver to us, to lead us to Jesus. God, my prayer uh, is that you would let your word have the effect that it is intended to have in us, that we would be a people who are rooted and grounded and submit to the authority of what you have said over and above every other voice out there. God, I pray that your spirit would help us to see uh, where we have taken a buffet approach to the Bible, where we have wanted to sidestep things that you clearly say because we just uh, make us a little uncomfortable to actually deal with that. God, I know I need convicting there because I'm, I'm the exact same way. And I feel like a lot of us in the room are probably there too, where there are things we know we need to be submitting to and we're not, and we're believing a lie that it's not actually for our joy and our good. And so, God, I pray that you would bring those things to our mind's eye and that you would lead us into repentance, that you would remind us again of how your word points us to Jesus, that we are all sinners in need of grace, that that's where the Bible takes us, but it is a grace that you freely give. Lead us into that space. Ground us and root us in your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.